0: University professors spend a lot of time talking about a lot of things with each other at academic conferences and in academic journals. The problem with that is you don't go to academic conferences and you don't read academic journals, and I wanna talk to you. Some of the most interesting thoughts in America about popular culture never get to be heard by people outside of the walls of academia. So I'm on a mission to bring those thoughts to you. Fabulous people, interesting ideas, Brilliant conversations. I'm Dr. Christopher Bell, and this is a hard hat area. You're on with the deconstruction workers. Hello again, and thank you for joining me on the deconstruction workers. My name is Dr. Christopher Bell, and today my guest is Marley Stever Williford, who is a graduate student at Bowling Green University in in beautiful Ohio, and. We are gonna be talking Hamilton. Everyone give it up for America's favorite fighting Frenchman. Hi Marley, how are you?
1: Hi, Dr. Bell, I'm really good.
0: Excellent. So let's talk about Hamilton.
1: Hamilton.
0: This phenomenon that has sort of come out of nowhere. I can't remember the last time a Broadway show was so big.
1: Yeah. Hamilton, an American musical. I was a theater student in high school and actually my first college major was theater. Mm -hmm. So I've always been Broadway, a big Broadway fan. But yeah, I've never seen a Broadway show blow up the way that this one did.
0: I think you would have to go back to something like Cats, right? Or a chorus line.
1: Right, like one of those shows that's been running for decades that makes its way into pop culture references. And they reference cats three times and friends. And Hamilton has been doing the same thing. Actually, they made a Hamilton reference in the CW show Jane the Virgin. Really? Which was really cute, yeah. It was uh, the room where it happens jokes. Oh, they also made a room where it happens joke in Big Mouth. It's that uh, oh, Netflix original Nef- the about John puberty. Mulaney. The John Mulaney thing, yeah. Yeah, so it came out in 2015. We've already got these pop culture references to it. And it's a Broadway show. So it's interesting because Broadway is usually kind of this exclusive. There's not a lot of access to Broadway, but Hamilton has found an audience.
0: If you think about the fact that Lin-Manuel Miranda had already won a bunch of Tonys, In 2008 for In the Heights, that Mm -hmm. unless you're a theater person, unless you're a Broadway New York theater kind of person, you probably know Jackrabbit Squat about In the Heights.
1: Yeah.
0: (laughs) It's not a show that people were jumping up and down about outside of the traditional Broadway community.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: And then Hamilton, an American musical, comes out of nowhere and sort of takes over a lot of space.
1: And... What I've been hearing, I hear a lot of people describing Hamilton as this. How does this premise work? It
0: should not but work. It's,
1: it's about <laughs> it's about America's first treasury secretary and it's hip hop. That shouldn't work. But me being a millennial, I was like, that sounds amazing. The first time I heard the premise for it, I was like, I am so there.
0: I think of it a lot like the Guardians of the Galaxy of the theater world. Yes. (laughs) On the surface, this thing should not work at all. One of the characters is a talking tree. One of them's an anthropomorphic raccoon. (laughs) This lady is green. None of that should work, (laughs) but it all comes together in this thing that's amazing.
1: And not to mention, no one had ever heard of any of these people. And it's the same thing. Alexander Hamilton, before the musical, wasn't he wasn't George Washington level of this guy is recognizable as an American revolutionary.
0: He's the guy on the $10 bill. And that's it. That's the extent of what anybody knows.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> that's, that's about all we know. So yeah, it shouldn't have worked. It shouldn't have been this big, but I think. I think the reason that it does work so well is because it tells you its thesis statement right in the title. This is an American musical. Everything about this show is American. And the music is very particularly American.
0: Except when it's not, which is a brilliant part of the show.
1: Yeah, except for when King George is doing his British invasion pop music, and the show completely changes direction.
0: The very first time we saw it, my wife said, oh, I didn't know that the king was Elton John. And I'm like, yes, that's the, <laughs> that's a part of the show is that the only British parts of the show are when the actual British person is there. Otherwise, it's very, very traditionally American. Even the parts that aren't hip hop, the songs that are sung by Eliza, for example, are very traditional Broadway, but that's also its own version of American music.
1: And Broadway musicals are a very American thing, especially like those big blowout numbers. I always think of one of my favorite songs in the show, which I kind of think is underrated, is um, One Last Time, (gasps) George (gasps) Washington. That is my favorite
0: song in the show. That is literally my favorite song in the show. (laughs)
1: my favorite person right now because everyone else is like that's yeah, okay and i'm like what is so good and it's because he's got this incredible moment at the end of the song where he's just belting it and when i went to see the performance i actually got to see it in denver as did i george washington's number brought the house down we cheered for like six minutes and everyone was like is he going to get a standing ovation in the middle of the show
0: which is kind of amazing. Isaiah Johnson is a great singer, but he is not Chris Jackson. And I I cannot even imagine being in the theater, have Christopher Jackson on the stage, belting that song directly at my face. I I, I know. I don't even know what that, I would probably <laughs> burst into adult man tears. Like, I don't even know <laughs> what I would do in that moment. He is such a good singer. He sounds like a robot. He sounds like someone put all of the things that would make you a good singer into a machine and then out came Chris (laughs) Jackson. Like, I don't get it.
1: Oh, yes. And we were talking about it on the way home because we're like, oh my God, that George Washington number. And I was like, it's kind of like he he was half getting cheers for his performance. And the other half was just all of these Americans in the audience yes. cheering for our first president. It was this, we were cheering because it was this American hero guy. <laughs> so it was just, I cried six times. Oh, yeah. I swear. <laughs> seeing
0: it live there's so there were so many moments having seen it live in the theater finally after all this time of listening to the soundtrack and all this stuff having actually been in the theater sitting there live the moments that honestly i fast forward when i'm listening to the soundtrack become this huge thing philip's death for example It was heartrending when you actually can see it and be in the space with it.
1: Yeah, they also cut out her wail in the soundtrack. Right. But when she performs it live, she lets out this terrible cry and I just, oh, it like gives me chills.
0: Yeah. The one part where I actually physically teared up in a way that I never have before is at the end of the first act when... Hamilton finds out John Lawrence has been killed Yeah, and to, and to see that on stage in that moment and the way it's staged and the way it's lit, it was so powerful in that moment. Mm-hmm. And it only, it's only about two seconds long, really. It's, I mean, it's probably more like 30, but still it's really short.
1: Yeah. It's real short. Eliza comes out reads the letter. And
0: I think it's the reprise of
1: the story of tonight. the
0: story of tonight that really yeah. makes it so palpable in that moment. Yes. Um, I probably should have started this episode by saying, if you haven't seen Hamilton yet, or, or at least listened to the soundtrack, spoiler alert. We're going to spoil a lot <laughs> of stuff. But really, yeah. if you paid attention in high school history, it's not any spoilers anyway, so
1: spoiler alert, Aaron Burr kills, <laughs> right. kills Spo-
0: There's a guy, his name is Aaron Burr. <laughs> you should watch out for him. He's a shady character. Uh, <laughs> some stuff is going to go down. Although now that I say that, the most interesting part of the show is Aaron Burr is not a shady character. You actually really feel for him.
1: You really empathize with him. Yeah. I watch a lot of YouTube video essays. Howard Ho does a lot of really great ones about the music in Hamilton. And the analytic, I think was one who actually advocated that Aaron Burr is the real protagonist of the show. Like the show is huh. called Hamilton, but it's really Aaron Burr's story. And he makes a really good case for that because we really do see Burr progress and change. He has a lot of dynamic change throughout the show. We we also get a lot of his, he gets an I Want song. <laughs> he gets a couple actually. We get Wait, Wait. For It, in act one and then the room where it happens in act two. So yeah, Aaron Burr is this incredibly compelling figure in the show. Honestly, compared to the historical Amber, I think they're a little generous, but
0: yes, I would agree with you there.
1: Everything that Alexander does, Aaron Burr takes the brunt of it and it gets kicked around a lot. And then act two, there's this reversal where Burr stops waiting for it and starts actually seizing all of these opportunities and acting more like act one, Alexander.
0: Right. Well, I mean, and this is the crux of the argument of the play in many ways for me is Aaron Burr, the whole first act of the show is the one who is reserved and cautious and doesn't want to do anything and mm. w- is willing to wait. Doesn't want
1: to stir the pot too Doesn't want to
0: stir the pot. And here's Alexander Hamilton, like shoving his life through everyone's path <laughs> Just uh, steamrolling everything in his way, completely impetuous. And then in the final moments of the play, it's Aaron Burr who acts all impetuously and it's Hamilton who's like, maybe we should stop and talk about it, but it's too late. He's already been shot, which I think is... Right. It's such an interesting reversal. Hamilton pushes Burr to the point where Burr has to be Hamilton and then realizes he's not as good at being Hamilton as Hamilton is.
1: Yes, yes, very much so. And it ends up in this really tragic mistake.
0: It's very Nightmare Before Christmas. It's very Nightmare Before Christmas.
1: Yes,
0: yes. You know? (laughs) Burr is very much Jack Skellington.
1: Yeah, I don't know if I got this from you, but The Nightmare Before Christmas is like the ultimate cultural appropriation. Yes,
0: Uh, we've talked about that in class before. I should, you know, in in full disclosure, Marley, Marley has been my student several times in the past, and we have talked about this often, about how if you really want to understand what cultural misappropriation is, watch The Nightmare Before Christmas. That's what Jack Skellington is doing. He is completely culturally misappropriating, and it ends in tragedy, as it literally always does.
1: Yep, actual flames and a graveyard. The symbolism is not exactly subtle.
0: No, it is not.
1: Aaron Burr is to Alexander Hamilton as Jack Skellington is to Santa Claus.
0: Exactly.
1: Um, (laughs) Whereas I'm finally going to start acting like you and get the stuff that I want. And it ends up with Hamilton dying.
0: He doesn't get to be the president. Yeah. He doesn't even really get to be the vice president because Jefferson shuts him out. Then he ends up killing Alexander Hamilton anyway, which really wrecks the rest of his life. You know, there's this interesting historical coda in that Aaron Burr ends up marrying a woman named Eliza. And then (laughs) she gets divorced from him and she hires Alexander Hamilton Jr. to represent her in court. And so Alexander Hamilton Jr. gets to take all of Aaron Burr's stuff, give it to Eliza, and then Aaron Burr dies at the end of the trial.
1: That is just...
0: History's amazing.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Well, there's so much about this story that I didn't believe could actually be true in history because it's just too perfect. Like the whole motif of the duels, there's this perfect setup reminder payoff structure of dueling in the musical where in this first one we kind of learn what it is and then in the second one we get that reminder when Philip dies and then the payoff comes with the ultimate duel, this like culmination of their whole relationship where Burr and Hamilton face off. And I was like, no way this really happened. That's just too perfect that Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton were seconds to these guys. And I went and looked it up, and that first duel between Lee and Lawrence really happened. Um, and, And Alexander Hamilton was Lawrence's second. And it's like, this is just too perfect. So there's so much about this. History is just amazing.
0: That song is a liar, by the way. That song is a work. It sets us up. Because in that song, they very clearly say, most disputes die and no one shoots. But then they only show us three duels in which people actually do shoot. And in all three of those, the person who gets shot at actually gets hit. And in two of those, they die. Yeah. So yeah. the song sets us up to believe a thing that it then shows us the exact opposite of.
1: It's very much like trying to trick us, you know, <laughs> or maybe even make it seem like these these duels were special and in that way make them more tragic.
0: I don't think I need more tragedy out of this play.
1: No, I had enough. <laughs> I, <think
0: there's> <laughs> I think there's plenty of tragedy in this play without yeah. them ramping it up for me.
1: My favorite character in the show is Angelica. Angelica Schuyler. I think she's brilliantly performed.
0: Ren- Renee Goldsberry? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, so, oh, she's so good.
1: And really well written. And I like that the Schuyler sisters get their own introductions separate from our other mains. The guys get their introduction in this... Can't believe I'm blanking. <laughs>
0: Well, at the end of Aaron Burser.
1: Right. And then the Schuyler sisters get a separate introduction, independent of Alexander Hamilton. So it's very much saying these characters are their own. They stand on their own. We're not only going to see them in relation to the main. And doing that gives us a really great sense of who they are.
0: And also a side note, it also gives me my favorite moment of the show, which became my favorite moment after my daughter saw the show, which is now she just walks around my house. My 12-year-old just walks around my house, just screaming, and
1: Peggy, which is <laughs> I love it. So good. Um, the moment that I realized I was in love with the show, because I heard, I think I heard Skylar Sisters first, before I had listened to the whole album. And when I meet Thomas Jefferson, I'ma compel him to include women in the sequel. And I was like, Work. "Oh, that's so good!" <laughs> that's
0: so good. The first time I heard the show, I was on a road trip with you. Yes. And Dustin, who will be a, a guest on a on a different episode, and you guys put on the recording, and we were driving, and I was not paying any attention for quite some time it just sort of was washing over me because I wasn't really listening all that hard but I do remember the first time I actually really started to hone in was Angelica singing Satisfied.
1: I love Satisfied.
0: That was the first time I really and and that hook of to the groom to the bride to the revolution and I and I really started to pay attention to the story at that moment so in a lot of ways it was really Angelica that hooked me into listening to the rest of the show
1: I love, I love that song. Satisfied is actually my favorite song in the show. One Last Time is up there, but Satisfied, I think, is my favorite. And it, it's because getting to see that whole interaction from Angelica's perspective, there's something so tragic about Satisfied. It's just the greatest romantic tragedy ever. You know, her feeling this instant connection. And then all throughout the show, we get these little twinges of that same tragedy. One of my other favorite moments from the show is... I think it's later in the second act, she's writing to Hamilton and she's like, I noticed you put a comma yes. um, in between dearest and Angelica. And I'm, does that mean you think I'm the dearest out of all the people? And it was just like, oh, honey, that's so sad. So sad. <laughs> and, you know, I'm a grammar nerd. So I was like, grammar is sexy, guys. Check it out. <laughs> yeah, the... The whole romantic tragedy too. And it really is. The whole show is a tragedy. It's got so many funny moments, but it really it it tears you up.
0: <laughs> well, and especially because both of both the first act and the second act are downward sloping. So yeah. you start both of these, both the first act and the second act on these real high notes. First act you get Aaron Burser, you get I'm not throwing away my shot. You have these really great big Brassy numbers where your adrenaline starts to roll, or whatever. And then the first act ends with John Lawrence dying. Yeah. And then in the, the second act, you get Thomas Jefferson and the cabinet battles, and they're, you know, again, way up here. And then you end with everyone dead at the end. And so, you know, we're yeah. sort of set up on these downward slopes, which enhances how tragic the show is.
1: Right. It really takes you on that emotional roller coaster where you're going up and down, which means those downward slopes feel so much more dramatic man Hamilton's really good it really um, <laughs> is and it's and it's
0: clever and I think that cleverness is really what draws me to it because I keep finding Easter eggs all throughout the show all the time I remember yes. the moment where I was like oh you punched the Burser is another play on Aaron Bursar That's you know and, yes. and I felt so smart in that moment and I've, I'm guessing a million people already knew that but the first time I heard <laughs> it and I figured it out I felt really smart or um, yeah. when you know he says fools who run their mouths off wind up dead, and then the first person to talk after he says that is John Lawrence, and you go, oh, oh, you feel oh so oh my brilliant. gosh, I didn't
1: even recognize that. <laughs> really?
0: So, <laughs> yeah. so there you go. See.
1: So clever. That's the light
0: bulb moment. And you're like, uh, oh, that is so, so clever. Yeah. There's all these little pieces throughout the show.
1: It's really a big love letter to Broadway, too. There are so many references to theater in this show. Yes. George Washington's in- introduction, he says, I'm the modern major general, the the reference to... Uh,
0: Pir- uh, Pirates of Penzance, yeah. yeah.
1: Uh, that, that was the kind of stuff that made me feel clever for recognizing...
0: Well, and I heard a rumor... And by rumor, I I mean, I think I heard this in an interview with Lin-Manuel Miranda, where he said that Pirates of Penzance was the first play he was ever in, which is why he includes that particular reference in this show.
1: Yes, that would make a lot of sense. Yeah, there there are tons of those all scattered throughout.
0: I could be making that up, but I think I heard that.
1: Later in the show, when he's talking about, you'll understand the reference without me having to name the play, but it's Macbeth.
0: But it's Macbeth.
1: So, <laughs> Calling Macbeth the Scottish tragedy or the Scottish play is an old theater superstition. You're not supposed to say the word Macbeth in the theater while you're doing a production because it's bad luck. So that was one of the things that I thought was really cute when he was talking about how he's a Scottish tragedy. And I was like, oh, he's doing the Macbeth thing. And then 10 seconds later, he ruins it. But...
0: on the other side of that there's also all of these references that are specifically layered in for people who know something about hip hop in a way that theater doesn't normally do and as I'm sitting there listening to it I can go oh that's Kendrick Lamar that's Busta Rhymes that's Big Pun that's you know and you can go through the show and you can hear the musical references to specific rappers in the way different characters rhyme which is great the only other person who can do Busta Rhymes besides Buster Rhymes is V Dix. So let's give him all of Buster Rhymes'
1: you <laughs> yes. know, mannerisms.
0: Let's give him all of his vocalics and then let him go do what he does.
1: I love the way that that kind of reveals Lafayette's character progression too. At the beginning, he's this French guy who can barely speak English. And then at the end, he's just rapping real fast and it just sounds amazing. Guns
0: and Ships, probably my second favorite song of the show.
1: I just wish I could do it, you know? <laughs> That's
0: what I I've gotten to on. I've gotten to a point where I can mostly, I can keep up. But yeah. Divvy I mean, Diggs
1: is just incredibly talented. So
0: talented. So, so good. Yeah. Which then kind of, in a weird backwards way, kind of poisoned me going into seeing it live in Denver. Because the whole time I was willing to give just about everybody else the benefit of being their own Actor in that own space doing something new. Yeah. But I think it really just made me be like, you're not David Diggs. So everything <laughs> you're doing is making me irritated.
1: It was hard. Yeah, it definitely was. It was It was hard. I had listened to the, the soundtrack right. probably a hundred times before going to see the show. I'd been on YouTube watching people make animatics of it. Um, the,
0: we'll talk about the animatics here separately in a minute because I love yeah. the animatics and we'll talk about that.
1: Yeah, Me too. It was hard to not... Not be like, you're doing it wrong. Right. Which is exactly (laughs)
0: how I was the whole time with a pouty face and folded arms like you're doing it wrong.
1: (laughs) That is not how you're supposed uh to be doing it. I pretty quickly was able to find a way to like just appreciate that I was seeing it because the people who were in Denver and I don't know all of the actors that were that performed in Denver, but uh, they were all of course remarkably talented and very m- much committed to the show. But yeah, it was definitely like, oh man, I've seen this in my head so many times and I've heard these singers perform it so many times. It's really hard to be like, you guys are doing it wrong.
0: Well, And I gave myself some room to say, okay, it's going to be slightly different and that's okay. Let's see what they do with it. For example, Austin Scott, who played Alexander Hamilton, I thought brought something really unique and special and awesome to that role. That Lin-Manuel Miranda didn't. There were moments where he interpreted it differently, which helped me interpret the whole show differently.
1: Yes. One of my favorite things that he did, I know exactly what you're talking about. He performed one line very differently, completely changed the meaning. In Non-Stop, Aaron Burr was like, I finished up my studies and I practiced law. And then... Um, Hamilton was like, I practiced law.
0: I practiced law. You worked next door. <laughs>
1: you worked next door. And it, and
0: it changed the meaning.
1: Yes, completely changed the meaning. And now that's how I hear it every time I listen to the show. It's like, I don't know what you were doing. <laughs> I was practicing law. <laughs>
0: this great great moment where uh, what's his name i think his name is Mathany Traco something like that he played Hercules Mulligan James Madison and i think one of the one of the weaknesses of the original show of the original cast and i'm not slagging the dude cuz he's on broadway and i'm not but one of the, i think one of the weaknesses of the original show is that the guy who plays Hercules Mulligan is an amazing Hercules Mulligan and not very good at James Madison and i think that's i think that becomes a problem
1: yeah, it was like how do you play this character, and especially because his James Madison wasn't as physical, and he was he was just having a lot of trouble. It seemed like bringing physicality to that role.
0: But the guy in Denver, this this Matthew Trico guy, he completely changed my third favorite song which is washington on your side there's this moment at the beginning where he says where they say look back at the bill of rights and he turned completely off stage put both his hands to his mouth and then shouted which i wrote (laughs) at a hamilton that has already walked away with george washington (laughs) and it was the greatest physical joke of, the sh- of that <laughs> performance of the show. It was amazing. And I laughed hysterically out loud in a way that that's a throwaway line in the original production of the show.
1: Yeah, he was really great. He, he was, was great. Really-
0: he phenomenal. was really, really great.
1: And every second he spent on stage as Hercules Mulligan was just my, like my favorite thing. Yes. <laughs> it's just like, yeah.
0: So, you know, someday when I get Lin-Manuel Miranda on this show and have him across the table from me, I will tell him, go find that guy and put him in the actual Broadway production because he
1: is right. fantastic. He is
0: fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> he is fantastic.
1: I, there were a couple things watching the show live that you can't get from the recording that I just... Like when Philip is nine years old and he's doing his first little poem that he's performing for his dad and you realize that Eliza is beatboxing (laughs) for
0: her son. Yeah, that's actually Eliza.
1: She's standing back there and it's just the most adorable mother-son moment. And it makes them really feel like a family. It was so cute. And that's something that you just can't get from listening to the recording.
0: I think the most undersold part of the show, the most unsung part of the show, is the dance company who is doing yes. all of this amazing scene work that you don't get when you just listen to the recording. And it brings something so amazing to the to the production. For example, at the end of King George's first song, the dance company is there with him and whatever. And then as he's walking off stage, there's an actual sight coda to the song where the guy dressed as a British soldier grabs the person dressed as a revolutionary and breaks her neck.
1: Yes. Yeah, and, yes, you're like, and it, oh. that was
0: like—it's
1: this tonal shift. Okay, we had a lot of fun with that song, but people are actually dying. You all laugh, but—but
0: <laughs> but I'm actually sending people to kill people.
1: Yeah, and um, you know, in the eye of a hurricane lifting tables and chairs. And they're like actually creating this storm on the stage around Hamilton. It's really amazing to watch.
0: Or the rewind in the middle of Satisfied, which is jaw dropping when you can actually see it. Actually watch it. Yeah. And you realize that they do the literal reverse of everything they do all the way back to the beginning of the song where they, you know, hey, 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 all the way back to that part to the very beginning of a scene. It's crazy how precise it is when you can see it live.
1: The other thing that I was amazed by seeing it live was, wow, they're really keeping their voices up through all of this dancing, and that's incredible.
0: (laughs) Again, that's why you're on Broadway and I'm not.
1: There is so much that you miss from not seeing it live, considering that it's Broadway. And I was really lucky to see it. My godmother got me tickets as a surprise. <laughs> they were not cheap and they were very hard to come by. You know, we were both the same day, like online, trying to get our trying
0: to get tickets, tickets. and
1: getting put into that huge queue. Um, yes. <laughs> where I think I was 68,000th in line.
0: I was like 13,000th and still didn't get tickets.
1: Yeah, it was hard. It was really hard to get tickets and they did not come cheap either, so.
0: Okay, so this brings me to sort of the academic portion of this show, sort of the academic concept of political economy. For listeners who are not in the academic world, Political economy basically is the way in which culture gets produced based on the financial and political aspects of society. In the case of this particular show, what that means is that this show is a commodity that has to be sold. There's the cultural aspect of it, which is all of the stuff internally to the show. It's all the stuff in the show. But there's this external factor that the show has to produce money. It's a very expensive show to produce, but beyond it being an expensive show to produce, it has to generate revenue. It has to generate profit for the people who back the show.
1: Right, Which it did. Which it did. And is. Yeah.
0: And continues to do and will continue to do. But the upshot of that is that this show that is listed on the, in this case, the Denver Center for Performing Arts was listed as a show that tickets started at $40, $40 tickets were gone five seconds after the show opened. Right. And by the time it got around to me at $13,000, the only tickets left were $500 a piece. And it leads me to this place where I think to myself, number one, Why on earth do we have a cultural product where someone has the nerve to try to charge $500 a ticket? Number two, why does someone charge $500 a ticket for a show that it's literally antithetical to the message of the show for them to charge $500 a ticket? And number three, and this is the bigger, more important piece to me, is that this show was made in large part, and and I want to be very careful how I frame this, but... This show was made by a brown-skinned immigrant kid who consciously put brown-skinned people in all of the major roles in the show, except for the villain, who is the only person who is cast directly as a white person.
1: Right. And it wouldn't make sense for King George. For
0: King George to be a person of color. So we have all these people of color in this show, written by a person of color, trying to bring hip-hop music to Broadway. And then I go to the show and I look around and I am one of only a handful of brown-faced is in the audience. The entire Mm -hmm. show audience is populated by white people who have, because of their financial abilities, priced the very people who need to see the show the most out of being able to see the show.
1: Right. One of the incredible elements about the show is the representation, but that representation isn't necessarily getting to the people it's representing.
0: In a very real way, it's sort of a, a weird gentrification of the show. Yeah, And it puts it into this space where I started to feel uncomfortable in a very, like, Dave Chappelle sort of way. Remember, Dave Chappelle had this really big show that he walked away from at the height of its popularity because he felt like...
1: White people are laughing at the wrong jokes. Right. Yeah.
0: And I felt a very similar way sitting in Hamilton. I was having a good time and I love the show and I'm glad it's financially successful. But there's also this moment where I looked around and kind of wanted to just scream, This isn't for you. This right. this whole this whole experience you're enjoying right now is not for you. Yeah. And the people it's for can't be here. Now, in defense of the show, I will say that part of the touring of this show requires the places where the show lands to do free shows for high schoolers mm-hmm. during the run. And so when they were here in Denver, something like 1500 students got to see the show. I want to know what high schools got invited. To be very to yeah. be very honest, I want to know if that's in the Denver area, if that's schools like Montbello and Thomas Jefferson and these schools that are predominantly black and brown kids or if it's mm-hmm. just Cherry Creek High School who got to come And do a thing that they were going to get to do because their parents could afford the tickets anyway. Right. And so that's a very roundabout way for me to say, before I saw the live production, I saw the bootleg. For people who don't know, there is a very high quality bootleg of this show Online
1: with the original cast,
0: with the original David and Leslie Odom Jr. and the whole shebang. It floats around. Sometimes it pops up on YouTube. Sometimes it pops up on Vimeo or on Daily Motion. And under normal circumstances, I would never advocate that somebody go out and you know do something illegal. Except right now, which I'm totally gonna do, <laughs> um, because you should watch this bootleg. And the fact that this bootleg exists. I think is actually a net positive, not just for the show, it's a net positive for America. And here's why. Because number one, the reason they say don't pirate, which is a stupid term, which we could talk about in its whole own show. But the the reason people say don't do this is because you're taking food out of the mouths of people. Hamilton is making plenty of money. You're taking the food out of the mouths of no one. Number two, (laughs) there is not one single human being on earth who is going to watch that bootleg and then say, okay, well, I'm sussed. Like, I I don't need to actually go see Hamilton live because I've seen it on boot. Uh, that's ridiculous. If anything, having seen yeah. that bootleg made me want to be in the theater twice as much. To yeah. want to, want to see me. it live. Yeah. One of the things I talk about so-called piracy in general in my classes is the people who bootleg the most are people who already own the thing, who already love the thing, who already want the thing. Nobody goes to try to find some crappy audio of a band from some concert, unless they already own the album. It's not people who are like, well, I would listen to this band, but I don't want to pay for it. That's ridiculous. That's not how piracy works at all. That's how the industry likes to portray piracy as working, but it's not.
1: Yeah. And we talked in class kind of about the demographics of who pirates the most and who buys the most DVDs. And it's the same demographic.
0: (laughs) The people most likely to buy a DVD are also the people most likely to download the thing first to see if they want to buy the DVD. Right. And as I continue to say, continue to advocate, if you give people things that they want, they're willing to pay for them. Why don't people buy DVDs? Why do they pirate? Or why don't they go to the theater? Why do they pirate? Because I'm not sitting through 12 hours of previews or FBI warnings or when i I get a movie downloaded, I go right to the beginning of the movie and I watch the movie and I don't have to sit through all the garbage. I go right to the beginning of the movie. Or if I download these two songs off of this album, I get the best two songs that I want and I don't have to sit through the other eight songs I don't want. And if you sell those to me as iTunes started to do with music, Sell me that single for 99 cents. I'll buy that single for 99 cents. I'm willing to give you a dollar to listen to this music. I'm not willing to give you $12 to listen to eight songs I don't want.
1: So uh, this is kind of interesting because it's basically Spotify's whole business model, which is, listen artists, people are gonna download your music, but if we make it way easier for them to just pay 10 bucks a month to get it, (laughs) They'll do that instead.
0: And you'll get some money, but you won't get none.
1: Yeah. You're not going to get brick and mortar sales from CVs anymore, but that's not going to happen anyway because that medium is dying. We need to make it easier for people to stream the music that they want, and they'll pay for it as long as we make it easy and accessible.
0: And in the case of Hamilton, there's an added... Layer, And that added layer is that the very people who should feel attached to this show, who should feel finally someone's talking about me and my struggles, who understands the concept of a kid off the streets riding his way out of poverty, Those very people are the people who can't pay $500 to go see a show on Broadway and who need free access to the story. They need it. Yeah. They need it like they need air and water and and sunlight. They need to see this show because it brings them into America. It allows them access to see themselves as a part of the American story in a way that... To be quite honest, and I'm sure it's probably going to make some people mad, but to be quite honest, in a way a lot, not all, but a lot of white people never have to think about. They never, it's part of the privilege of privilege.
1: The story of George Washington and the American Revolution has never excluded white people, (laughs) obviously. Obviously. And I'm I'm a white person. I've never felt like my my history wasn't representative of enough of me as a white person, maybe as a woman. And for that reason, I, I really appreciate the portrayal of women in Hamilton as well. But as a white person, it was never like, why aren't there an, and more stories about white heroes of the American Revolution?
0: <laughs> this is a very important point you're making, though, which is that a lot of the backlash against this show has been how come you took all these white people and made them into brown people? If we took all these brown people and made them into white people, people would be really mad. And I say, well, yes, number one, they would. But number two, (laughs) number two, these people at this point in our history aren't people anymore. They are the characters of the origin story of our country and because they are the characters of the origin story of our country what they represent who they are is way more important than what they looked like at this moment of our history for yes people who looked like them but for people who did not look like them portraying them as people who do look like them gives them access to the origin story of our country to say Alexander Hamilton at the end of the day is an immigrant kid just like you. At the end of the day, George Washington is this old father figure that you wouldn't see as an old father figure, young black kid in the inner city if he looked like an old white guy. But if I make him look like your grandfather, I can show you why people have attached to him over the years. I can show you Aaron Burr was this guy who had problems and this other guy kept dogging him all day long until finally he had enough and he had to do something about it. I can show you Thomas Jefferson was this guy who everyone thinks of as this hero, but at the end of the day is kind of this pompous jerk. I can do all of these things by making them look like you so you can get past what they look like to get to the story itself.
1: Right. And that kind of brings me back to that subtitle an american musical because the show saying this is what america looks like these people are america and when you're talking about how it's an origin story and how truly american the show wants to be it wants to reflect what america actually looks like
0: what america actually looks like now
1: yes hmm Yeah. So there's so much about that that makes the show inherently political. You can't really get around the politics of Hamilton.
0: It's a show about politics. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting side note. So one of the criticisms that I've read quite extensively online when I started going through and reading the reviews of the show, not the Denver version, but of the show in general, is there's this very common, honestly conservative refrain that the show spends too much time on the personalities of these people and not enough time on their actual politics. And this to me is sort of the crux of, in many ways, why there's no conservative theater, just as a whole, there's no such thing as conservative theater. And the reason for that is if you're that interested in your political stance, as your outlook on life, it precludes you from making art, I think.
1: Right, it's not very interesting if we don't get in touch with the personalities of these people. That's not how stories are written.
0: But that's not how politics works either. You can't divorce what someone thinks from who they are as a person. That's not how politics Mm -hmm. work at all. It's important to understand how Hamilton's politics are driven by where he was born and who he was as a young person and how he grew up and what his life was like and what his personality was like. That informs his political opinions, which are really not that important to the telling of this particular story.
1: I completely, completely agree. And I think that kind of reflects in the audience the fandom of Hamilton, too. That people who get really into this show get into it because the politics of Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton, the person, his personality and his story resonate. So you can't really, because it's unusual for a Broadway show to be like this, where Being a fan of it says so much about your political identity. Like, if you're a fan of Phantom of the Opera, that doesn't say much more about you than that you like Phantom of the Opera. (laughs) But if you're a fan of Hamilton, it belies something about your worldview and your position on immigration, for example. It's hard to be a fan of Hamilton. They use the word immigrant about a million times throughout the show. You know, he really wants to emphasize this is an immigrant story. And he is an American hero. And that's what America is. That's like the whole thesis. So being a fan of the show, you kind of get involved in the politics of the show. You have to. There's no way around it.
0: Loving this show tells me who you are. Yes. I read one review... It was a newspaper review right after the Denver show opened, where the person who was writing said something to the effect of, I don't know why this show is so popular. Is anybody really walking out of the theater humming these tunes? And I wanted to say, do you not exist in the actual world around you? Have you never gone on YouTube? Have you never Googled? Have you never been on Facebook? Do you know anything about the rest of the world? Which leads me back to the statement I just made, which is, this is why there's no conservative theater. If this is the kind of show that you want that focused solely on politics, that was populated solely by white people, that was basically a documentary series, that doesn't exist because people don't want that.
1: There's not a lot of art in that. There's no humanity in that.
0: There's no humanity in that. That is the perfect statement. There's no humanity in that.
1: And Hamilton has a lot of humanity. It's it's drowning in it. And so are the fans are just, as a result, drowning in humanity. And it's very antithetical to the anti-immigration politics of the GOP today, because there's calling people aliens, for instance, is very dehumanizing. Literally. Yeah. The way that they're getting people to have these anti-immigrant, I guess, attitudes is by dehumanizing immigrants. And Hamilton does the exact opposite. It takes this immigrant story and it makes it the most human American thing you've ever seen. And it makes you cry. (laughs) And it really makes you empathize.
0: But it also makes you laugh and it makes you angry and it makes you understand.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It really takes you through all of these.
0: It humanizes history in a way that some people find uncomfortable and other people find
1: enlightening. So many of the fans of the show that I've talked to are like, why didn't they do this in American history? Why didn't they tell us these stories about how these people used to fight and call each other names? And
0: <laughs> Which, two things. Number one... If you go on YouTube, you can hear some of the deleted songs, the things that they started with and then removed from the show. It makes me really sad that they removed two songs. Number one, a song called No John Trumbull, which leads into the first cabinet battle, where basically the intro used to say history portrays these guys as founding fathers and they were all on the same side, but these guys hated each other and they yelled at each other all the time. And that's how through
1: stuff and that's how life really was. <laughs> right, yeah. and that's
0: how life really was. and then the second one is the one about John Adams, which proceeds where Hamilton is on the balcony and drops a literal f bomb on the stage, right. <laughs> which I thought was brilliant staging. But in that rap that he does before he says, you know, sit down, John, you fat. Just before that, he does this whole thing about how John Adams doesn't do his job, is never in his office, has his wife fight his battles for him, really sets this thing up. And they removed that song because John Adams isn't in the play at all. And they didn't want this sort of external reference. But I think it says so much about Hamilton's state of mind at that particular moment that they should have left it in.
1: He was completely unhinged at that moment. And John Adams and Alexander Hamilton were in the same party.
0: (laughs) You're absolutely right. They're the same political party. So there's that. But then the other, the second piece of this is this is also why, again, I'm going to advocate bootleg this. Get your hands (laughs) on the video and show it to your middle school and high school classrooms. Get a copy of this show. And by the way, while I'm advocating bootlegging, if I do ever get to see Lin-Manuel Miranda in person, I am going to beg him to just put out a DVD of the show. Yes. I don't want to have to bootleg it and I don't want to have to tell other people to bootleg it. Put out a really high quality DVD. People will buy it.
1: I would pay $30 for a Blu-ray of this.
0: I would absolutely pay $30 for a Blu-ray of this, and (laughs) I would probably buy one for my daughter's school so that her teachers could show it in their history classes. Yeah. You're missing out on a market here.
1: Because watching it, I mean, it got me more invested in American history than I had ever been in school. And I went out and I bought the book, too, the Ron Chernow (laughs) Biography.
0: <laughs> I bought the Ron Chernow biography, which by the way, is a slog. Like, I don't understand how this musical came out of that text because it is, it, dense. it is hard. Yeah. It's a hard, <laughs> it's hard. And I'm a professional academic with a PhD and that book is hard to get through. <laughs> yeah. But So I'm, I'm slogging away at it still. I've been reading it for like a month and a half on the side. But I also <laughs> bought the Hamilton show book, the one that has yeah. all of Lin-Manuel Miranda's notes in it, which is a gorgeous book. And my wife this weekend just bought me a book about Eliza Hamilton. So I'm, I'm starting to read about Eliza as well.
1: Yeah, because, you know, Eliza gets this big piece at the very end of the show right. where she talks about everything she did after he died. And I was like, can we just get a sequel called... <laughs> hamilton but it's about eliza this time or skylar (laughs) because she was fascinating
0: side story more importantly than that my daughter had to do uh she was she's in the fifth grade she just well she's leaving the fifth grade right now but the fifth grade at the end of the year they had to do this wax museum where they had to pick someone from the american revolution and portray them and this list came home here's all the people your kid could pick not on that list alexander hamilton Aaron Burr, Eliza Hamilton. And I'm like, wow. how are you going to do the American Revolution without these people? So I sent a very polite note back with my daughter that said, my daughter would very much like to portray the Marquis de Lafayette. Because she would. <laughs> That's amazing. Because she was, she was like, I want to be Lafayette. And so... She said, I, but I don't know if I can because I don't know if there's any books in the library about Lafayette. So I said, well, I'll take you to the public library and we'll get you some books. So I sent back this very polite note about how my daughter would like to portray the Marquis de Lafayette. And I got this note in return that essentially said we're doing stuff about the American Revolution,
1: <laughs> which led me to
0: believe that someone didn't know the Marquis de Lafayette was a part of the American Revolution. So I sent back another note, not wanting to get into that particular debate with my daughter's teacher, she would like to portray either Alexander Hamilton or Aaron Burr. I know they're not on the list, but that's a problem with the list, not a problem with my kid. So my daughter got to dress up as Alexander Hamilton, and she read all these books about Hamilton and wrote this big, long thing. And I think to myself, that fifth grader would have never known who Alexander Hamilton was, known who... Aaron Burr was, known who the Marquis de Lafayette was, nor would her teachers have even questioned the fact that those people weren't on the list of American revolutionaries if it wasn't for this show that my fifth grader has only seen because her dad showed her a bootleg. Yeah. This show is bigger than itself. This show is a historical moment that is bigger than itself, and I'm at a point where I am willing to say which is a weird thing and a a difficult thing to say in America and an unpopular thing to say in America. But I'm at a point where I can say this show is making enough money that (laughs) other people getting to have it is more important than them making one more dollar.
1: How dare you? (laughs) This is a capitalist society. I'm such a terrible American (laughs) right now,
0: but the show is big. The show is bigger than the money it's making. And if you're not going to give it to people in a way that they will pay for it again, A kid who really needs to see this show can pay $15 for a DVD or $30 for a Blu-ray and get to see it. You should give that to them. And if you're not gonna, you should not be surprised that it is a bigger cultural phenomenon than you thought you could ever possibly handle. And that people will get it in the ways that are available to them. And the problem with that is they're not getting the best version of the show. If you watch that bootleg, it leaves a lot of stuff out because it's very focused on whoever is speaking. And a lot of what happens in the show is not the people who are speaking. Mm -hmm. And you don't get to see that.
1: Yeah, you're not seeing the periphery and It's a very different experience getting to see it live as we've discussed which kind of brings me to the animatics that we were talking about earlier because fans find a way they're like We don't get to see the show, so we're just going to make the show. We're going to make the show ourselves. For the listeners who might not know what we're talking about here, if you go on YouTube and you start searching for Hamilton songs, you will find these uh, basically cartoons that people drew of the characters acting out the show along with the songs. And one of the great things about the soundtrack is that it's the whole show. Like, you can get the whole story just from hearing the soundtrack. You do miss a couple of things, like we mentioned earlier before, but for the most part, you get to see the whole thing. So, yeah, fans are finding a way to make this show available for people who want to see it.
0: This is the great part. If you piece all the animatics together, it is a storyboard for the best Pixar movie of all time. Like, yes. so, like if, if Disney or Pixar or somebody would just take all those animatics, use them as the storyboard and just draw what's on the animatics, you would make a billion dollars tomorrow.
1: Right. They're beautifully animated. It's beautiful. I also love that they're drawn as the actors who play in the original Broadway production. They're not drawing George Washington as he looks on, you know, the one dollar bill. They're drawing, no, they're drawing Chris Jackson. Jackson. Yeah, they're drawing Lin Manuel Miranda into V Diggs. And it made me so proud because it's one of my favorite things about basically fan practices is that fans will take something and they will create something new and even better from the original through all of this creativity. And it's just astonishing. <laughs>
0: And the next level, those of you who are listening to this right now and you're in an art school somewhere or you're, you know, an animation student at Full Sail University or something like that. The next level is going to be those three students who get together, who take one of those animatics and actually animate the whole scene. You're you're going to get hired by everyone you know. Every company you've ever (laughs) heard of is going to hire you to animate for them. So, you know, jump on that and then put it on YouTube so I can watch it
1: please. (laughs) (laughs) I just, I I loved that people were like, here's this thing that I love that is for whatever reason, inaccessible to me. Obviously the financial component, those tickets do not come cheap. And the ones that come cheap do not come easy. So they're like, we're going to make this thing so that so many more people can enjoy it. And they really do. They characterize all of the actors so well, they give them these great little mannerisms every time they draw James Madison there's one i i don't know which youtube channel it is so i apologize for not citing this properly but uh, there is one of these creators that draws Madison 2 inches tall and always like <laughs> sitting on Jefferson's shoulder which i think is hilarious that's awesome <laughs> Because it's just it feels so accurate to how it sounds in the show, where Madison is always just jumping in with b- backup for Jefferson.
0: <laughs> so Hamilton, in conclusion, what?
1: Oh um, what's your what's
0: your takeaway here?
1: My takeaway is that Hamilton is a very important cultural artifact. This is not going away. Broadway shows do last in a lot of ways, but the amazing thing about Hamilton is that the longer it lasts, the more it changes. We're getting Hamil drops every month with old songs, but things that were taken out of the show or things that are being reproduced and with fans creating new interpretations of it all the time. I don't think it's going away anytime soon.
0: I would agree with you. I think my takeaway for Hamilton is... This is a cultural phenomenon that is bigger than itself, and it is important. It's a vital conversation. It allows an entire group, an entire generation of people who have no care or access or knowledge of the American Revolution into that space. I think it's ultimately the story about poor immigrant kids rising up out of their circumstances. I think it's one of the most important cultural texts of our lifetime and i really need them to find a way for more people to have access to it it's that important
1: yes so if lin-manuel miranda happens to be listening um
0: (laughs) as as i certainly would be if i was that famous i would be googling myself every day and if i Um, heard someone had a whole podcast about my thing i would definitely
1: listen to it but but i'm shallow like that make a (laughs) blu-ray
0: please make a blu-ray today i will buy all the copies i will
1: buy i know and love will get a copy
0: i will buy not only a copy for myself but for every school in my daughter's school district i i will i will hook you up so hook me up
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah I mean, I do think the show is beneficial just by existing, but there's so much more that the show could do if everybody could see it.
0: I totally
1: agree. Yeah.
0: Well, I would like to thank Marley Stever-Wilfer for being my guest today on The Deconstruction Workers.
1: Always. A lot of fun.
0: (laughs) The Deconstruction Workers podcast is produced and directed by me, Dr. Christopher Bell. If you like what you hear, the best thing you can do for the podcast is give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Feel free to check out TheDeconstructionWorkers.com, follow us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TheDeconstructionWorkers, or Twitter at PodcastDCW. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can donate as little as a dollar a month towards keeping the lights on at www.patreon.com slash The Deconstruction Workers is recorded on the beautiful University of Colorado, Colorado Springs campus, 6,033 feet above sea level. The theme song for The Deconstruction Workers was composed by Raphael Crux. As always, please support alternative scholarship and public engagement. The Deconstruction Workers is copyright 2018, all rights reserved.